Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. So good to see you guys. Man, how awesome. If you are a kindergarten through fourth grader and want to go to our G2 ministry this morning, you guys are welcome to be dismissed. Mr. Matt is standing right over here. You guys can go with him. Have a great time. Let's give them a hand for being in our service this morning. It's pretty awesome. One of our uh, youngest kids this morning, her name is Lillian. She came forward and today was her first time to take communion. She had given her life to Jesus. And, uh, incredible, incredible thing. So we love to celebrate those things. That's awesome. Hey, if you have your Bible today, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we'll keep celebrating. Lots of things to be excited about. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the church in Pergamum today, the next church kind of along this circuit that Jesus is writing letters to the churches in this area of Asia Minor. And so we've been showing you this map, and I think it's going to come back up again this morning. We'll show you where we are geographically in the region of uh, what's now modern-day Turkey, but was Asia Minor in this time period. And so you see there, starting with number one, Ephesus, Smyrna that we talked about last week, and then moving north, we're at the tip of this area now uh, called Pergamos. And so in Pergamos, they faced many of the same things that the church in Smyrna was facing. If you missed last week, you can catch up on our website or app, what, getting the podcast and just catching up on some of those things. Uh, but the church in Smyrna was facing things where the culture was trying to infiltrate the church. And Jesus had only good things to say to the church in Smyrna because they had stood their ground. They had remained faithful to him. It's one of two churches that he writes letters to that he has only good things to say, nothing negative to say about what they're doing. And he just instructs them, stand firm in your faith. Don't let evil come in. Don't let wickedness invade the church. You're doing a great job standing firm in your faith. Even though there are those who would say, man, just you'll be more accepted in our culture if you'll be Christians and do what we do. We can tolerate you being a Christian if you'll also participate in these things that Jesus would say, those don't belong in my church. And so when it comes to the church in Pergamum, they're facing these same kinds of temptations, these same kinds of things. And yet in the church in Pergamum, they're not doing as good a job standing firm in their faith in Jesus and keeping the negative influences of culture out of the church. And so what you see in Pergamum, just some history for you and some things to kind of give you some context, um, is that Pergamum was called the most famous city in Asia. It was this kind of empire area where the Roman culture had influenced so greatly that they had began to not only worship the emperors, but had set up the first temple of emperor worship. They had created a temple to Augustus Caesar. Someone said that if you could get people to first worship Rome, 
which is what was happening in Smyrna. Last week, we talked about how the culture in Smyrna had begun to worship Rome. They had taken it to the next step uh, in this area and said, we don't just worship Rome, we also worship the emperors. And it starts out with dead emperors. We're gonna worship those emperors past. We're gonna worship the dead guys. But then if you can get them to worship Rome and then you can get them to worship the dead emperors, then it's not much of a jump to get people to worship the live emperors as if they're gods. And so this culture had begun and developed where the church or where, where the culture is worshiping live emperors as if they're gods. And the emperors had embraced this idea that I'm not just an emperor ruling over Rome. I'm a deity. I am God. And so in that context, these things are beginning to unfold in the church of Smergamum. And the people of this area in the people of Pergamum are worshipers of power. Like they worship power. Not only do they have the, uh, the temple to the, the emperor that's there to worship Augustus Caesar, but they also had set up a temple to, uh, to the god Zeus, who's the god of power. He's the, the god of the gods, so to speak. And so in this area, you've got this temple where people are coming to worship Zeus. Uh, today, if you were to go to the British Museum, the, t- the, uh, the throne of Zeus in his temple is in the British Museum today. Uh, Adolf Hitler used to regularly visit the British Museum, or excuse me, the, the Ber- Berlin Museum, uh, to go and to, to see this, this throne. And so in the middle of all of that, there's these worshipful things that are going on. It's a, pa- a place of power in the city. Politics was religion. Religion was politics. There's no blurred lines. It's just, this is how we do things. If you're going to engage in politics, it's worship. If you're going to engage in worship, it's politics. We're going to have all of these things mixed together. And so the people there are extreme worshipers of the empire and of the rulers. And so in this city, the people are starting to ask the Christians to accept what they believe and what they do. Hey, listen, you need to, you can have your Christianity, but we want you to also embrace these other things. We want you to worship our emperor. We want you to worship our gods. We want you to engage in the things that we think is okay. And we're gonna find out more about what that looks like in just a few minutes. And so the question becomes for them and for us, can we take liberty in our Christianity because we've been forgiven of sin to participate in worldly activities? Like that's the question, right? Because I've been forgiven of sin and because God is a God of grace and mercy, can he just let me do anything I want and he's going to forgive it? So in the freedom that I have as a Christian, I can do whatever I want. It really becomes the question of the line. Do you remember this when you were growing up? Anybody else have this kind of thing? I did youth ministry for a long time and I was a teenager for a few years too, but it was always the question of the line. How far or how close can I get to the line without crossing over into something? specifically when it came to dating relationships. And how close can we get to the line to where we're okay, but we don't do something that offends God or that's not sinful? And the question always tends to become, how close can we get to the fire without actually touching it? Instead of the question becoming, how much distance can I put from myself in the fire or the line in order to maintain the holiness that God has called me to? Not to be somebody who's, uh, who's trying to be judgmental toward other people or, or living in some lifestyle like that. But we're just saying, man, I, I know where God has placed boundaries. And instead of getting as close to the boundary as I can without just tipping over it, I'm going to stay away from those boundaries. Not in a legalistic way, but in a way that honors God and his holiness. He says, I don't want to pursue those things. That's the culture that the church is in, and that's the culture that Jesus is writing to. So if you will, look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
And he says this, To the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so with that in mind this morning and what we see with Jesus, we see the very first thing that Jesus does. Anytime he writes one of these letters to the churches, he introduces himself in some way. And in, to this church, he writes there in the first verse, in verse 12, he says, this is the one who is writing to you who has the sharp double-edged sword. So if you're taking notes this morning, you want to write some things down or you're on our app and following along, you can just write this in, fill in the blanks. Jesus is revealed as the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. You go, okay, great. What does that mean? Well, if you remember back to, John, to the beginning uh, of what John had written in chapter one, he doesn't just have a sharp double-edged sword. Where is the sharp double-edged sword? It's coming out of his mouth. Right, and you're like, okay, that's just weird imagery. Like he's walking around with this sword coming out of his mouth. What in the world does that mean? We're gonna talk about that in just a second. But the sharp double-edged sword in the Roman culture was the symbol of someone having power over life and death. And so the Romans would have thought about this double-edged sword and it was a symbol of power. We have the power to give life. We have the power to leave you alive. We have the power to kill you if we want to. And it's all gonna come by the sword. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And to a culture where power is worshipped and where these people in the, in the city around them in Pergamum are saying, man, everything is about power and influence and how much power and authority I have. And Jesus writes to them and says, hey, I'm the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. They think they have control. They think they have all power. I'm the one who has all authority. I have all power. And the reason that he says in chapter one that the sword was coming out of his mouth, it's not literal that he has a sword sticking out of his mouth. It's a way of saying that when Jesus speaks, he speaks power. What comes from his mouth is power. You go back to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God do that? And he spoke the world into existence. From his mouth comes authority and power to bring life. Everything that was created comes from the spoken word of God. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation in the battle of Armageddon, which everyone thinks is gonna be this massive battle where the armies of earth are gonna come against God and they're gonna fight against God and it's gonna be this bloodshed moment. There will be bloodshed, but it's gonna be a one-sided deal because Revelation says that when God speaks over the field at Armageddon, that everyone just dies. He doesn't have to fight against them. He's going to speak death over them and they will succumb to it. Because out of his mouth comes the authority and the power to bring life and to bring death. And even as Christians, we go, man, that's, that's not popular. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I like that message. You don't have to like it. You just have to accept it. You have to understand it. That Jesus is the one 
who has all authority, who has all power. And he writes to his church and is a way to comfort them. He says, listen, I know where you're living. I know it's where Satan has his throne. I know it's where Satan lives. I know that there's power here. I know there's demonic things going on here. I know that there's oppression that's happening here. And I'm telling you that I have all power. So you don't have to bend to the power of their city, the power of their culture and society, because their power fails in comparison to who I am. In fact, he goes on and he says this. He doesn't just see where they live and knows that there's a place of power. He knows it's where Satan has his throne. Thrones in the book of Revelation are another symbol of power. Uh, and in fact, after we finish these letters to the churches, when we get to chapter four, after the letters to the churches have been written, the very next thing that God allows John to see is his throne room in heaven. And so he essentially goes, hey, John, write to these churches, tell them that I understand that there's powerful things going on around them, but after you've written to them, I wanna show you something else. I wanna invite you into my throne room because it's the seat of authority and power that only God has. And so we're gonna get a view, a glimpse into the throne of God. But in this culture, a throne would have represented power. The throne of Zeus, the throne of Caesar, whatever throne it was, it would have represented power. And so Jesus goes, listen, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. Satan has power here. He has authority here. The city of Pergamum was that seat of worldly power for this region. And Satan is the ruler of the world for this time being. Satan is still known today as the prince of the kingdom of the darkness of this world, right? When, when Satan shows up in, in God's throne in the book of Job, God asks him, hey, where have you been? And Satan says, oh, I've been roaming throughout the earth seeking whom I can devour. Because Satan has authority here for this period of time. God has granted him that for a limited window of time. But Jesus is going to tell us at the same time, hey, while Satan has some authority, while I've granted him some power, he doesn't have it all. All authority, all power belongs to me. And so while the church lives in this place of satanic power, Jesus commends them for not renouncing their faith. Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Antipas was a leader in the church in this area, and at some point in time, he was martyred for his faith. He had stood against, in fact, his name means against all. He had stood against all opposition in Pergamum, where the church clashed with the culture. And he was martyred for his faith, for standing against all of the influences of culture into the church. He stood up and he said, this is not right. This is not right. This is what God teaches. This is what we're supposed to be about as Christians. This is the path. This is the right way. And as a result, he ended up dying and giving his life. And so Jesus commends them for not losing heart. He says, you didn't renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. When he gave his life and you could have folded under, under pressure. Can you imagine the leader of the church being killed? And then the Christians going, well, what are we going to do now? That was, that was the leader. And he says, you didn't renounce your faith in me. You stood firm in my name. The name of God is always associated with his character, with his nature, who he is. And so he commends this church and he goes, you stayed true to who I am. You kept representing me. Even in the time of hardship, even the days of Antipas, when he gave his life, you stood your ground in the place where Satan lives. And so he had that in their favor. But then he also says, but I have some issues. And there's some things that Jesus has to address with this church. And so to the people of Pergamum, he writes in verse 14 and says, nevertheless, all those things were great, but nevertheless, I do have a few things against you. 
There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and they committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, you can find the story of Balaam and Balak if you go back to Numbers chapters 22 through 24. But essentially what you have is a man who wants to curse the Israelite people, so he hires Balaam to go and to curse the Israelites. And there's spiritual warfare that's going on. There's oppression that's going on. There's some physical warfare that's taking place in all of that. But they raise this campaign of warfare against the Israelites. And the enticement was get them to practice things that go against their faith in God. To eat food sacrificed to idols like all of the other regions around Israel. To practice sexual immorality like everybody else does in their worship practices around this region. And so this same spirit of Balaam and Balak exists in the church or in the city of Pergamum. He says, this is what you're fighting against. You're fighting against people in the culture who are saying, hey, it's okay for you to be a Christian and eat food sacrificed to idols. What difference does it make? Hey, it's okay for you to be a Christian and practice sexual immorality. What difference does it make? Everybody around you is doing it. No one's going to hold this against you. We're going to even be okay with it more if you're a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian and follow Jesus, we're not okay with just that as long as you make us look bad because you denounce our practices and our ways. But if you say you're a Christian and you do what we do, we'll be fine with that. In fact, we'll leave you alone. You can have your worship. You can worship Jesus. You can worship your God, whatever you want to do. But do it like we do it. And does that sound familiar to anybody? in our culture, where we just go, hey, look, it's fine to practice Christianity. It's fine to be a Jesus follower, but you also have to be all-inclusive of everything else. Embrace what society says. If you have a difference of opinion, we're going to crucify you for that. That's the culture that's happening in this context, and it's the same thing that we face today. I mean, how often do we find ourselves being tempted to engage in things that our culture says is acceptable, but we know it goes against the heart of God? And so while we might not be tempted to eat food sacrificed to idols, that's not a big thing in our culture. We are tempted to worship other idols. The idols of wealth, the idols of popularity, the idols of politics, the idols of power. We make our children idols in our homes. We can have all kinds of things that we're tempted to worship and put ahead of God. And most of our culture and society around us is going, what's wrong with that? You can be a Christian and love money. Jesus didn't think so. You can be a Christian and have other things that are more important than God in your life. Jesus didn't think so. You can be a Christian and, you can be a Christian and, you can be a Christian and, but that's not the picture that the Bible points out. And so we have to have this understanding in our Christian faith. What are we going to stand on as the principles of truth and the foundation of God's word to us about what's right in his eyes versus what the culture says is acceptable? So where do you have idols that have invaded your heart? The second thing that they talk about is sexual immorality. We go, okay, well, sexual immorality. Well, I'm, I'm not having an affair with my, against my spouse. I'm not, I'm not engaged in that. I'm not sleeping with people I'm not supposed to. But when Jesus came on the scene, he upped the ante. Do you remember? He said, you've heard it said not to have sexual immorality or not to, to do anything that's sexually outside of God's will in marriage. But I tell you, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, it's the same as if you committed adultery with them. And Jesus takes this up to a whole nother level. 
And man, in our society, it's run rampant with sexual immorality. Pornography's everywhere. The things that we invite into our home on our TV screens, on our phone screens, on our computers, sexual immorality is everywhere. Pornography is one of the largest businesses in the world. Pornography makes more money in a year than the NBA, NHL, NFL, and all major sports teams combined. Think about that. Most statistics say, and things like the Barna Group and the research projects that they do, that Christians engage in watching pornography just as much as anyone else in the culture. It's gripping. And it's what gets into our heart that we have to fight against because our culture looks at it and go, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? I mean, we think about it. We think about what culture just says is okay and how many of us are okay with some of the same things. Oh yeah, I, I watch Game of Thrones because I like the, the battle scenes. I'm sure you do. Oh yeah, I read Fifty Shades of Grey because of the character development. Mm -hmm. Of course you did. <laughs> what do we allow in? Then we go, what? but every, everybody's okay with this. Everybody's okay with it. Why, why can't we have this and follow Jesus? And Jesus writes this letter and he goes, you're practicing these things. And here's the main problem. Jesus points it out. He says, the problem is that they're holding to these things when they were meant to hold to him. Look back at verse, uh, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, I have these things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And he goes, you guys are holding on to things that I told you to let go of when you came into relationship with me. I came to free you from those things. And yet you're holding to them. And Jesus goes, I want you to hold to me. And so if you're following along, taking notes, the next blanks on your outline are just simply this. Those who follow Jesus must hold solely to his teachings and his ways. And what keeps us from falling into sinful practices? What keeps us from falling into sin and holding onto these wrong things? It's embracing and remaining true to the name of Jesus and not renouncing faith in him to pursue lesser gods. It's going to look, you can pursue these other things. They're lesser. They're not going to lead to life. They're going to be destructive to you. And you can hold on to those things, but they will cause pain in your life. But if you'll hold on to me and be true to my name and my ways, I'll bring life and hope and peace. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we holding on to? What have we held on to that the culture says is acceptable and fine? Be a Christian and hold on. And what has Jesus said? Hey, let go of those things so you can hold solely to me. He's Lord. He's King. He's God. He doesn't allow us to have any other idols in our life. He asks us to hold to Him. So Colossians 2, 6 through 10 just says this, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. He is the leader. He's the one we hold to. And yet, culture finds its way into the church more 
and more and more. It happens all around us. I read an article last week of a church in Canada, a United Church of Canada. I'm not going to tell you which church. I'm not going to tell you who the pastor is, but the lady who's the pastor of this church, this is what the article says. It says, they have an openly atheist minister who seldom uses the Bible during worship and has replaced the Lord's Prayer with a non-sectarian affirmation. The church is currently facing the possibility of being, or the leader, the pastor, is currently facing the possibility of being defrocked for being an atheist, you would think, right? <laughs> Didn't happen. A later article that followed up on this said that the church had found a way to keep her engaged and involved to be the pastor of the church. She's pastored there for several years, and since the year 2000, the church has undergone extensive change, both in what it teaches and in its membership numbers. A spokesperson for the church told the Christian Post that worship services at her church have moved away from language that references God in order to create an environment without barriers to participation. We don't want to include God because we want to have no barriers for people to participate. The services are themed around love, justice, compassion, care and responsibility, and living in right relationship with ourselves and with others and with the world. So this spokesperson told the people who wrote this article, they don't recognize the Bible as more authoritative than any other sources and some of our members publicly identify as atheists. We rarely read the Bible in our services. And when we do, we read it alongside other sources of inspiration. We draw from many sources, including novels, journal articles, blogs, poems, nonfiction books, memoirs, videos, and music in our services. The services in our church are inclusive for those who, with, uh, who may have differing interpretations of quote-unquote God. Some which would be consistent or considered traditional and some which will be considered progressive as well as people whose journey to, uh, who choose to journey without belief in God but who would choose to have Christian or choose to have values-based living. And so when we think about all of this, we go, man, this is the spirit of the Nicolaitans that slips into the church. Right? It's the spirit of those people who are going, practice whatever the culture does and weave that into what you believe in, in church and weave that into your faith. Now, now listen, I want you to hear from me that we would never turn away anybody in this church who would choose to worship with us and be around us, atheist or otherwise. If they're coming here and they say, hey, we want to be around, we want people to hear the truth of God's word. We're going to proclaim and teach the truth of God's word. And you can be around us for that. But you can't be a pastor of the church and be an atheist. You can't serve in our children's ministry and not believe the biblical things that we believe. You can't lead a small group and not hold to the teachings of Scripture. You can be around us, and we invite you here. Everyone's welcome with us. Homosexuals, come worship with us. Atheists, come worship with us. We want you to be around God's people and understand what love looks like and what truth looks like and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and be tolerant of you as a person because we love you, but know that there is an intolerance to the things that people practice in life because we don't hold to those same teachings. That's the struggle of this church. And it's the struggle in our culture that's going to become more and more prevalent as we live out a society and live in a society where our values are decaying more and more and more fully. Does that make sense? And so as we live these things out, there's one thing that Jesus says brings a remedy to his church for holding on to false teachings. And here's what it is if you're taking notes. The remedy for holding to false teachings is repentance. And so he writes to the church, these things that I have against you, the way to remedy this in verse 16 is repent, therefore. Repent, therefore. And guess what? It's the leader's job in the church in line with the Holy Spirit 
as he reveals sin and reveals things in the church that don't belong. It's the leader's job to come through and to hold people accountable in the church to the things that God says is sinful or wrong. And if we don't do that, Jesus says he's the final authority. And he basically says, listen, if there allows, is allowed to be practices in the church that look more like the culture, if you have a paganistic Christianity and the leaders of the church don't deal with it, then I will. I'll step in. And he reminds them, right? Look at verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He just reminds them, remember that sword of power? I'm the one that has that. And if you don't deal with sinful practices in the church, I will come and I will fight against them. Let me explain who the them is. It's not the people in the city of Pergamum that are participating in wicked practices. It's the people in the church. And he goes, listen, if you don't deal with it in the church, I'll come and deal with them. And I've got the sword. Church, listen. You would much rather me and the elders deal with your sin than you would for Jesus to show up and deal with your sin. And so that's why we, we hold fast to things that the Bible teaches and says this is right, this is godly, this is holy, this is truth. And we try to stand on those things. Not to live in judgmentalism toward one another, but to help hold one another accountable to the practices of God's holiness. Because we love you. And because if you love me, if you saw me sliding down a slope of sin, you would pull me back from that cliff, I hope. To point me back in the direction of following Jesus. Because he alone is worthy. And so the next blank on your outlines, if you're following along or want to write something down, is just this. He has the right to prune the vine where his people are concerned. He has the right to prune the vine. It goes back to the idea in John chapter 15, where he says, we're the vines, or he's the vine and we're the branches. And anybody who doesn't stay connected to the vine, he comes along and he cuts them off. Because they're not bearing fruit. They don't look like him. They're not bearing out his image in the world. And so Jesus purifies his church by calling us to repent of sinful activity that we may have become desensitized to in our pagan culture. Right, and so when you think about that, what, how many things are there that the more it's in front of you, the more it's in front of you, the more it's in front of you, the less you think, oh, maybe that's not as bad as I thought it was one time. Have you ever just gotten desensitized to something? A simple example. I've always had bad headaches from the time I was a kid growing up. And so I would take Tylenol. Tylenol would deal with it. Then it was Tylenol and Advil that would deal with it. But my body just learned to take those things and just doesn't matter. Kind of become desensitized to those things. Now I need stronger medication. Now it's the Excedrin migraine stuff. And then eventually it's going to become over-the-counter kind of stuff. Or not over-the-counter, but it's going to become medicine that the doctor prescribes, right? Because my body's going to learn to fight off some of those things. And that's kind of what we do in this culture where we go, I've just become desensitized to some things. I've stopped seeing it as sinful. I've stopped seeing it as wicked. I've stopped seeing it as a bad practice. It's just normal. It's what everybody in our culture embraces and accepts. And so when we start to become desensitized to it, he says, I'm going to come in and I'm either going to ask the church to deal with that through its leadership or I'm going to come. And so then this final thing, to those who are victorious, who stand in their faith in Jesus, to those who are victorious, Jesus offers supernatural and eternal provision and he declares them to be innocent. Right? And so he says, for those that are standing in my name, 
for those that are holding fast to me, if you're going to be victorious, I'll come and I'll declare supernatural, eternal provision for you, and I'll make sure that everyone knows you are innocent in my sight. And so look at the last verse, verse 17. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Can I go, okay, a couple of things here that are weird and, and we don't in, really understand. What is the hidden manna? Hidden manna probably refers to the manna that was stored in the Ark of the Covenant with God. If you remember back to Exodus in the Old Testament when God gave the law to Moses and then uh, they created the, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant were kept the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod, which at one point in time had budded. Remember it flowered, the rod flowered. They kept that in there. And then they also had been given manna by God to provide for them when they were walking through the desert and there was no food. And the Israelites complained against God. It would have been better for us to stay slaves in Egypt because at least there we were fed. Yeah, and beaten and mistreated and killed, but you had food, so great. And so God goes, hey, listen, here's what I'll do. I'll provide food for you then. And he gave them manna to eat. And one of the things that they had done to, to remember that was to collect some manna, keep it in a jar, and they kept it in the Ark of the Covenant. And so Jesus goes, hey, listen, this hidden manna, if you persevere, if you hold fast to me, I'll give you hidden manna. What's he saying? He's basically just saying, I'll provide for your needs. The same way I provided for Israel in the desert, I'll provide for you. You're not going to know where it's going to come from, where my provision is going to happen. But if you'll stand true and hold on to me in the middle of a culture that's going south, I will provide for you. And then he says, not only will I provide for your needs, I'll also give you a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The white stone represented a couple of things in the Greek culture. One, it was a token that was given to an athlete who was victorious in the games. It was almost like a key to the city. Uh, if you watch the Hunger Games movies, the people who survived the Hunger Games were then taken care of for the rest of their life by the city, right? The white stone would have been given to a champion of the games and then basically they would have been taken care of for the rest of their life. They were set. It would have been like the key to the city, this Visa card that had no limits on it. Here you go. The second thing that the white stone represented was in a court of law. When someone came and was deemed to be guilty of a crime, if a judge found them to be innocent, they would give them a white stone. And that white stone represented innocence. And so when they would go out, anyone who would say, hey, you did that crime, you were the one who committed that, they could just say, I was found not guilty. I've been proven innocent in that matter. My new name isn't guilty, it's innocent. Now, I'm not gonna take a stab at knowing what the secret name is that only you know, I don't know. If he says that and he doesn't tell us, we're just gonna assume we're not supposed to know. But attached to the white stone, we can say, man, my name in Jesus' book is innocent. God does not hold my sin against me. I've been brought in front of the judge of all the earth. And in the face of opposition and oppression and a culture and worldliness, I was found innocent. I remained true to him. I remained pure in my following. I didn't hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, to the things that Balaam and Balak practiced, to that spirit. I held on to Jesus. So church, that's our call. Hold on. We live in a culture that is putting more and more and more pressure on us to look like them 
than to look like Jesus. And Jesus is telling you today, hold on to me. Hold on. And if you do, I'll provide for you. And I'll find you innocent when the time of judgment comes. It's not you who has to worry. It's those who don't accept me. So where do you stand this morning? Do you practice a paganistic Christianity that's not really Christianity at all? Have you adopted what culture says is good and right and okay and said, I'm just going to mix these things and it's Jesus and? Or do you find yourself holding solely to Jesus? Saying, even if it costs me, he's worth it. He'll take care of me. And he'll make me innocent. And if you don't know what it looks like to be holding fast to Jesus, don't leave here today without making that relationship right. Without repenting of things that you've been holding on to. And letting go of those things to hold to Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, today can be the day that happens. It's not just something we do with communion. We would love to talk to you after this service. You can come and find me or one of our elders, our staff. We would love to talk to you about a faith relationship in Jesus. If that's uncomfortable for you right now and you want to just take another step but you don't know what else to do, on the connection card you were given this morning when you walked in at the bottom of that card, there's a place that says, I'd like to know more about being a follower of Jesus. You can just check that box and turn it in. There's a box on the wall over here. There's another one outside of that door. You can hand it to one of us. We'll follow up with you because we want you to know what it looks like to follow after him. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.45 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.